Namaste and Hariyom. Uh, this is Kishore Trivedi uh, welcoming you to today's episode of All About Dharma program on Radio Naira. As you know, this radio program is a part of Know Your Dharma initiative of the Hindu Society of North Carolina. And past recordings of these audio clips can be found from the KYD tab on hsnctemple.org website. Today, I'm particularly happy to introduce our guest, Mahendra Ranchot from Palo Alto, California, who is also a close relative. So Mahendra, you can say hello to the audience or namaste. Hello, everybody. This is Mahendra Renshad. I'm very happy to participate in this program. Mahendra, you spent first 30 years of your life in South Africa and the more recent decades in California. You have told me that your exposure to Hinduism and your understanding of Hinduism have changed over time and that these experiences can be divided into four phases. Can you tell us what you mean by that? Yes, I can. And I suppose my experience with Hinduism is, may not be so different from the experiences of others because we change with time as we, as we grow mature. Our understanding of the world changes and certainly my understanding of Hinduism changed with time. So to start at the beginning, um, I grew up in Port Elizabeth um, in South Africa, a city of about 200,000. And the Indians constituted a very small percent of the population, less, much less than 1%. So when my grandfather and his associates came over to South Africa in the early part of the 20th century, from 1900 to 1910, they um, came from the villages of, South, of, of India mainly, and they came into an environment that was quite different weren't very really fluent in the language of Africa, in Afrikaans. Uh, they were surrounded by a population that was predominantly Christian. And uh, the world was not a very welcoming world to them. So they did what you would expect of minority groups. They ganged together. They formed a cohesive society. And this group of Gujaratis that came from the same area between Surat and Nosari banded together and over the course of 10 or 15 years they formed community organizations they started gujarati school uh, they purchased a property and established a community center and uh, in time they also established a sports club for this particular community of about 250 people they did an amazing job actually um, as far as Hinduism is concerned, they did the best they could. They established uh, a system of having ovens every Sunday morning. They had pratna sessions on Sunday evenings. And as a child, I was introduced to Hinduism this way. I attended oven ceremonies um, every Sunday morning. I attended the pratna sessions on Sunday evenings where I learned to sing bhajans. But uh, although I realized that uh, we were praying and there was a deity involved and some higher power and that, that what we were doing was devotional, I must admit that I didn't really think much about it. I think that's just the nature of 
the mind of a youth. I didn't really think about asking questions about what we were praying to, what kind of God was this, what was our relationship to God. Um, and none of the adults actually made an attempt to explain Hinduism to us. Now, partly that may have been due to a language barrier. Most of the people who knew something about Hinduism spoke Gujarati almost exclusively. And in my generation, we were predominantly English speakers. So it was a sort of a language barrier. At any rate, uh, as a result of this, my understanding of, his, of Hinduism was uh, very rudimentary, uh, close to zero. I knew that there was some kind of Hindu god. I was confused that, that there were so many gods, that they had different images, not at all not, not at all simple when when there's no one to explain um, all these all these things. So that was my first phase, Kishore Bhai, um, a phase of I was going to say confusion, but maybe indifference. Maybe indifference is a better word. Meaning that as a child and as a as a young teenager, I was much more concerned about playing cricket with my friends and table tennis and doing other kinds of things. And I really had no interest in exploring what Hinduism was. Now, is this uh, typical of all the youths that you were familiar with? Uh, uh, or is it uh, your experience is different from everybody else's, you think? That's a good point. I, I, I think that uh, I'm speaking uh, mainly for my, my hometown. Um, because things are different from place to place in South Africa. And I'm not qualified to talk about exactly like, about the details in other parts of the country. But certainly in my hometown, uh, most of the younger population was much in the same place. I had a few friends who actually spent time in India. Some families went to India periodically and spent time in India. So I can think of one or two friends who had spent a year or two in India and they were much more immersed in the culture more than I was. But I represented the more typical youngster of the 19, early 1950s. And did you have contacts with other populations from India, such as Tamilians? Uh, yeah, so that, what's interesting is in the Port Elizabeth of my era, there were two populations of people. There was a Gujarati community um, and there was a Tamil community. And the Tamil community was very different. And these two communities, although we were classified by the government as Indian, these two communities operated very separately within our town. They had a temple, actually. They had a temple. We didn't have a temple. Um, their population was a little larger than the Gujarati community population. Uh, but because we spoke different languages and the, there were cultural differences, these two communities sort of lived in parallel. Uh, we had our own community organizations, our own sports clubs, but there was individual interaction, uh, social interaction, but not community organization, not community interactions. Mm, very good. And this I, I mean, what I meant was that there weren't interactions on a communal level but there were interactions on the on an individual level. Very good. Now, and then the second phase, you said there are four phases, right? First phase is Port Elizabeth, and the yes, second phase... Yes. Yeah. So the, the second phase, um, 
of course, these phases are arbitrary, uh, like most phases are. I'm, I'm making an artificial division between the different phases, but they have some meaning to me. The second phase was when I left Port Elizabeth to go to university, and I went to Cape Town, which was the larger city, it was more sophisticated, and I met people there um, who knew more about Hinduism than my uh, community in Port Elizabeth. Um, I, I talked about Hinduism to these people, and I got a better glimpse of Hinduism, but I must, must admit that it still was like looking at the pixelated image where you see dots or you see little squares without a clear image. So even though I spent um, 11 years in Cape Town uh, as a student and then as a young professional, my focus really still was on my profession and my personal life. And I, I must admit that I didn't really pay much attention to exploring Hinduism in any meaningful way. So um, at the age of uh, 30, I was still fairly ignorant about, about Hinduism. So, so were there opportunities though? Were there courses uh, in the universities? Were there people who were more knowledgeable around you? Temples there in Cape Town versus Port Elizabeth? Or is it simply because you didn't have, you were too busy with the profession and personal life to, to be involved with this? Well, I think there was uh, nothing about Hinduism on the university campus. This was the old South Africa where, where the university was really a white, made a predominantly white South African university. So the only Hinduism, so there's nothing, certainly nothing about Hinduism on campus. So the only Hinduism was um, in the community where I met a few people who knew something about Hinduism. But, you know, there's one thing, uh, this applies, I'm making a general statement here, there's one thing being knowledgeable about a subject and teaching it, explaining it to someone who is a newcomer to the subject. And this applies to Hinduism. I think Hinduism in some ways is, can be simplified and in some ways is, is basic philosophy, philosophy can be summarized uh, in a simple way. But no one actually did that. No one could actually capitalize Hinduism for me that made sense. And so I just wondered why didn't, why couldn't these people explain Hinduism to me the way my professors would explain chemistry to me? Why was it so mystical? Why was, what was it? Why were, you know, when I, when I went to Cape Town, I learned a lot. I learned, not a lot, but I learned names like Swami Vivekananda, Ramakrishna, I heard words like ashrams and uh, all sorts of new words, and I tried to connect these together, but they they didn't really make sense to me. What about Mahatma Gandhi? Uh, was he uh, somebody that was associated with Hinduism at that point, or uh, only politics that uh, he was associated with? I think that you know, in the Shatriya Gujarati Mandal Hall that we had, our community center, there was a photograph of Gandhiji taken in London. A very famous photograph of his newspaper and his in his armpit and in stride, I think from a meeting in 10 Downing Street. And so Gandhiji was a, a figure that we saw whenever we went to the community hall. Um, and he meant a lot to the community in, 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 in from a child's perspective, it was fairly vague. I, I knew he was a great man. I knew that he was a reformer. Uh, that he had interesting ideas. I knew also that he was fighting for liberty, had fought for liberty in India, and I remember the broadcast from India in 1947, Independence Day, 
Um, but it was, I don't think that he actually had an impact on our community in terms of Hinduism. So yeah, he was not associated with Hinduism. He was associated with the social reform and political right. reform and so on. Very good. Uh, so now we come to the third phase, right? Third phase presumably started when you emigrated to California. How did that experience from uh, South, how does it uh, did differ from the experience you had in South Africa? And was this when you were exposed to Vedant? Yes, so, so coming to California was a very new experience to us, having lived in a very different society in South Africa. We now came to an open society, and it was a society that invited exploration of everything. And uh, within a few weeks, we met uh, members of the Indian community here. The community was very small then. But we were lucky that the people here were interested in Hinduism. There was one other difference, and that is the community in the Gujarati community in Port Elizabeth that I was closest to was a community of businessmen. The community of Indians that I met in California were all professionals. And uh, there were a few people here, Malti and Rajendra Prasad in particular, who were older than us, who were leaders in the, of the community, who thought that we had to do something for the community locally. And they had children at that stage, we did not. And they were trying to find a way to uh, establish a community where their children and other children could learn something about Hinduism. So we started little classes, and then um, one of the new Swami Shinmayananda uh, they invited him to uh, California. Swami Chinmayananda gave us talks and lectures, and he suggested that we establish a small school where we taught Malvihar to the children. And so then uh, uh, the Prasads uh, and other family members uh, established, we uh, established a little school on Sunday mornings where the children went and learned Malvihar class. They attended Malvihar classes and there were lectures for adults, the parents who came to drop their children off. So we, um, we had lectures from members of the community who knew about, more about Hinduism than, than I did. And so uh, I, I began to see little bits of Hinduism, not really clearly, it was still quite confusing. But you know, something changed after we had our children, and I think parents who are listening to this program may relate to this. Um, once you have children, your sense of responsibility changes a little bit. Um, we felt, uh, my wife, Jamie and I felt that we wanted our children to learn something about Hinduism. They could explore other religions later when they were adults, but we felt we had to anchor them in Hinduism. But how could we do that if I didn't know anything about Hinduism? So it put a burden on me to learn something about Hinduism. We were really lucky in 1981, uh, we attended a family camp uh, in Piercy, Northern California that was run by Swami Dayananda. Some of you may know Swami Dayananda ran a three-year course in Vedanta for uh, students and uh, it was a very serious undertaking, but they uh, decided to run a camp for families so children, families in the area gathered and parents went up and uh, they had a wonderful experience being introduced to um, 
to Indian culture and Hinduism, other things. But for me, I was introduced to Swami then and uh, I heard him talk. He gave lectures. He had satsangs with his students. And for the very first time, I realized that there was a philosophy that formed the foundation of Hinduism. I was introduced to Bhakti Hinduism in my hometown without understanding that there was a philosophy that formed the foundation of this culture. And when I listened to him talk with his students, the discussions they had, this sounded like a debate at the university, you know, a conversation between professor and his students. There was the same kind of inquiry and questioning and clarification and the ability to speak your mind. This, this was a, a new way of looking at Hinduism. And with my little bit of training at university, it appealed to me because this is the way I'd been trained to think. So uh, once, once I was, that sort of caught my attention. I began to read a little about Hinduism. I attended uh, other, southern, other summer camps with our family. We attended uh, Vedanta lectures in our hometown. Uh, and over the years, uh, Swami Tejumanda took over the uh, Chinmaya organization. And I later had contact with Swami Chidananda. And over the, the course of two or three decades, I began to, I was exposed to more and more of Vedanta. And the pixelated image became a little clearer. Now, instead of just seeing little dots or squares, I began to see images. They weren't crisp, they weren't in focus, but they were images. And I, I really began to understand some of the basics of Vedanta at that point, but not as clearly Kishavai as, as, as you do, or as you may have done at the same age. But it was a long way from my experience in Port Elizabeth. I felt that I was beginning to understand Hinduism. Yeah, you were exposed to the best of the best that we have. You know, Swami Chinmayanand is a pioneer in this uh, business of trying to bring Vedanta to common masses. And Swami Dayanand Saraswati is his first disciple, as, as far as I, I know. You were also exposed to Swami Tejo Mayanandji, right? Uh, yeah. who, who became the chief of the Chinmaya mission after Chinmayanandji. And uh, you also mentioned Swami Chidanandji. Uh, yes. Yeah, um, and uh, so yeah, you were exposed to the best minds that Vedanta has to offer at, at uh, in our, our times. Yes, uh, both Swami Chinmayanandji and Swami Dayanandji are no more with us, but uh, they were there in our time. Um, but remember yeah, that remember that there's a teacher and student. No, no matter how good the teacher, it doesn't mean the students are going to learn very much. <laughs> the, but you mentioned Balvihar. Now, was it one of the earliest Balviharas uh, that uh, happened here in US? Uh, perhaps. I think, right? uh, yeah, I think this may have been the first. Um, I think the program in Los Altos may have been the first Balvihar program in the United States. Um, we didn't really have a curriculum at the time. Um, there was a woman by the name of Uma Jairasingham who, uh, uh, who, who sort of 
took leadership role in that uh, Balviar program. And I think, I think Swami Chino uh, and helped, but the parents uh, put together a curriculum. But over the decades, the curriculum became much more solidified, much more comprehensive, uh, organized. And uh, now Balviar classes, I think, are taught in a more systematic way. And in fact, uh, our own grandchildren are participating in it, uh, both Ishan and Kairav. And Bal Vihar is, uh, uh, is one. There are many other programs that have now come about uh, under many, various different organizations. So uh, I think K through 12 is well covered, I think, uh, uh, for our uh, grandchildren now. Uh, of course, the college scene isn't, isn't as, uh, as good as it should be. Um, but uh, then there is a, so we have covered three phases of your evolution in Hinduism. And now you're in the fourth phase. So tell us more about the fourth phase. So, so before we go into the fourth phase, I sort of say something about Balbi House since you- Okay, very good. About that. Um, you know, going to the Balbi House on Sunday mornings served a number of purposes. One was that the children learned some Sanskrit slokas and uh, they understood some of the words that they were chanting because they were explained to them. But also they went to a, 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 a gathering where there were other Indian children like them. So you have to remember that uh, in Palo Alto at that time, when, when our sons Sanjay and Tushar went to school, uh, they, they were often the only Indian child in the classroom and there may have been one or two or three other children, Indian children in the school. So um, all, all parents will know what the struggle children have to fit into a community that's different from you. So I think it was good for the children to go to Balkhiyar classes on Sunday to meet other Indian children who looked like them, who spoke like them, who had some of the same challenges that they had. So there was something... Um, more than just learning Balvihar, I think there was a, uh, a uh, affirmation of who you are in a sense. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and as I, I'd like to emphasize that Balvihar is a very active program in almost all areas of the United States, including our own area, Research Triangle yeah. Park. But we also have Sanskar Gurukul uh, conducted by our own temple, HSNC Temple. And uh, there is a similar program at the Babs Temple. And so and Bal Mukund for JK Yoga program. And so there are many programs available. You can pick and choose, uh, but make sure that you access one of these programs for your kids. I'm talking to the audience now, uh, for your kids or grandkids. When our kids were growing up here in this area, we did not have the opportunity. Unlike Mahindra Bhai, who, who was in the area with larger, possibly larger Hindu population. So they had the opportunity to send uh, their kids to uh, Balbihar. But I would urge all parents to look at this. And there are many organizations, not, not just Balbihar, but many others. So please look very carefully at that. Now we can come back to uh, the phase four, Mahindrabhai. Yes, so um, I don't know Sanskrit at all, really. And, um, but there, you know, Sanskrit words were presented to us during our various uh, classes. And one of the words that was used was mananam. Mananam meaning, I think, that uh, 
you can listen to teachers and listen to them, but you also have to spend time in reflection. And so I, I think of my fourth phase as a phase of reflection. Um, having attended a lot of summer camps, family camps, having attended a lot of lectures in Vedanta, having read things, translations of the Bhagavad Gita and Upanishads and so on, um, I, I decided that what I should do is, is uh, limit the number of classes I attend and spend time thinking about what all this means. And uh, it gave me space. It gave me space to just think about how does Vedanta fit into my understanding of the world. So what I had to try to do is to reconcile the ancient wisdom of Vedanta with modern science and the way modern science viewed the world. And since I must admit to you that I'm attached to science as a way of thinking about the world, um, science for me is something I, that's close to me and Vedanta is something that's close to me but there were differences and it called for reconciliation. So um, it took me a little while to think and argue with myself mainly. I wish I had the opportunity of discussing this with, with people who were willing to be completely open about the conversation. Um, but I, I, I think I've come up with, with my own blend of Vedanta and the scientific perspective of the world. And I think that every one of us um, has to have a philosophy. If you're a thoughtful person, you have to have a philosophy about yourself, who you are, about the world, how you relate to the world. And if you believe in a God, you have to have some understanding of what this God is and how you relate to this God. So those are, those are the kinds of questions that uh, I wrestled with. Um, you know, I asked, I think I played devil's advocate with myself and I said, well, come on. Um, so these are the kinds of questions I asked myself. I said, come on, um, the, the, the Vedas and the ancient books of India go back three, four thousand years, who knows how long. Christian Bible goes back two thousand years. Should we accept every statement made in these books? as the ultimate truth, as our perspective of the world changed with time in, in some regards. I think the human condition hasn't changed a great deal. So a lot of what Vedanta says about the human mind and society still applies, but uh, there are some things that one could say have changed. Um, that's one question. The other question is, um, if you take the statement, Tatramasi, you are that, I am that, um, how do we interpret that statement, I am that? There may be more than one way of interpreting that. Um, reincarnation is, is an integral part of the structure of uh, Hinduism and Vedanta, and it, it makes a lot of sense when you take the entire philosophy as a package. But if you take if you take reincarnation as a concept in isolation, then does it withstand close scrutiny? Those are the kinds of questions 
I I ask myself. A wonderful set of questions. So first, of course, this is a very big topic that you opened up, and um, so mananam. So uh, that there is a three-step process that Vedanta recommends, right? First is shravanam, that is listening or reading, and second is mananam, reflection, and third is nididhyasnam. Now nididhyasnam, people may uh, interpret differently. Very deep meditation or application of what you learn in real life. So I'm very happy to. See that you have uh, gone to the mananam phase. Uh, the issue of reincarnation, tattvamasi, very very deep topics. Uh, and so I find this uh, the notion of uh, that I am that I uh, that is I uh, atma is the same as paramatma is a very a very beautiful notion in some sense, but very difficult to accept, very difficult to understand. So that is what all the Upanishads are trying to spend all their time time on. But yeah, you hit upon a lot of and consciousness is another very important topic that uh, in the science relationship with science and and Vedanta. So what uh, you we can fill up an hour with uh, topics that you opened up, and maybe some other time we will we will do the uh, interview again. But it has been fabulous um, to hear your story, Mandrabai. Uh, this four-phase idea is a very good one, and and so I thank you again very much for participating in this conversation for Radio Naira. Hari Om and Namaste to everyone. Thank you very much.